My name is Jim Farley, and this is Drive. Everybody coming feels that they're like in the movie. You get 150,000 people, all those beautiful old cars. Everyone's coming in their beautiful vintage clothes, passed down from, you know, grandmother to mother to daughter, father to son. And um, it really is a great shared experience. I've never time traveled, but I think I've gotten as close as I could, which is every September I go to the Goodwood Revival uh, in West Sussex, England, a couple hours outside of London, to this very special place called Goodwood. Goodwood is owned by the same family who's owned it for 11 generations, and it's the only track in the world, racetrack, that has never changed. Everyone dresses vintage, 1950s or 60s. People come with their vintage vehicles and they all park together. You have the track. In the middle of the track, there's 40 or 50 World War II airplanes taking off and landing. There's no shortage of things to see or do. It all comes in the creativity of one family and one man. My guest today is His Grace, the 11th Duke of Richmond, or informally, Charles Gordon Lennox. Would you like me to call you the Duke of Richmond or Charles? <laughs> I don't know how to do this. <laughs> I think Charles is probably a bit easier. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk to you because with all of, all of the opportunity to get to know you, I've really never asked the questions that I'll ask today. So I hope we'll have some fun too. I guess I'd have to start with many of the listeners would probably be interested in your family's relationship with the monarchy. Like, how does that all work? Oh, gosh, Chip. <laughs> um, well, it doesn't really. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so it's very, very distant. My family uh, was connected originally to the Charles I and Charles II. So Charles II, illegitimate son with Louis de Carroy, who was a French spy. In the 17th century, he was made, that child was made the first Duke of Richmond and I guess I'm the 11th, so it's a very distant connection to the Queen, but yeah, they're very separate families. And how did the Goodwood estate come to be? How has it changed over the years? Well, actually it's changed very little, amazingly, very similar in size. So the first Duke in 1697 bought a house here, bought a hunting lodge here for the fox hunting. So this was really the first fox hunt in the world, first properly documented fox hunt in the world was here. And anyone who was anybody really at that moment in the 17th century would have uh, hunted here. It was a big, big social thing. And then his son actually bought the hunt and moved it uh, to Goodwood. So we're very connected to all these sports, bizarrely, and it's all these sort of crazy enthusiastic members of the family mm. who followed all these sports. And hunting was the first one. Then there was horse racing. You know, well, there was cricket actually before then. Then there was horse racing. Then there was golf. Then there was flying. And then, and then the motor racing actually was the last one through my grandfather, but we are the product of all this enthusiasm and um, passion from various members of the family and their sporting activities, really. And I've tried to reignite those in a way. So our little mantra is horse racing, motor racing, golf, flying, shooting, and cricket. (laughs) (laughs) That's quite a list. I'd love to spend a little time getting into the revival itself and the racing at Goodwood. You know, I, I would describe about Goodwood is it's kind of like the ultimate party that you would want to go to, you just didn't know you needed to go to. And, um, you know, how did it start? How did motor racing start? And also, how would you describe someone? What makes motor racing different at Goodwood? Sure, it all started uh, with my grandfather being passionate as a kind of teenager, uh, 
really began with flying and then, and then with cars and with driving and engineering. And his brother was really, I think, the, the influence. So his elder brother, Charlie, who was tragically killed an archangel fighting the, the Bolsheviks in 1919. So having got through the first war, he then volunteered crazily for this, this expedition to Russia. And that affected his younger brother, Freddie, who was my grandfather, enormously. So he was 15 when his brother died. And they had this passion for all things mechanical. I see. And um, so my grandfather then was flying. He was riding motorbikes at Oxford. Uh, he left Oxford very early, much to his parents. I suspect their horror. He was meant to be riding horses and mm. wearing his kilt and stuff. Mm. He didn't love that mm. much. <laughs> and he went to work for Bentley on the shop floor and oh. uh, started, started putting cars together. In fact, it was rather a nice story with a young mechanic at Bentley he was working with at the time who said, hey, Freddie, have you heard there's this Lord working here or something, but we don't know where or who he is or when. <laughs> and Freddie kept his mouth tight shut and said, oh, really? Oh, I <laughs> so he was um, very humbled. You know, I was very, uh, very close to him indeed and loved being around him. And he really got me into it all. But anyway, he, as he was a very good car designer. I got some of his cars, made some of the best looking pre-war British sports cars and things. And then he got into racing himself and he did very little of it, but he was very successful and he won some big races at Brooklands at that time. His parents didn't approve at all of this. So having had this success before the war, he was then very um, supportive of the, of, of the RAF, wanting to requisition some of the land and build a, uh, a major Battle of Britain airfield here, which they did. So a big chunk of the estate was taken up with this airfield, and uh, which still very much exists. And around that airfield, they built a perimeter track. And the young RAF pilots... And a lot of American pilots, 601 Squadron was based here at Goodwood, and they raced their cars around this perimeter track. And it, it was those young pilots who suggested to my grandfather uh, immediately after the war that it would make a great racetrack. And literally by September 48, they got it going and they held their very first meeting. I see. And for those who are not familiar with Goodwood, you know, there's Indianapolis and Le Mans and Monaco, but Goodwood is right up there because it's such a special and unusual place to watch a race, but also to drive on. What makes the race course itself so unique, other than not changing all these years? What makes it so unique in your eyes? Well, I think there are a number of things, uh, Jim, that makes it unusual for sure. Well, first of all, it was the very first track in England to open after World War II. Mm -hmm. And it was an airfield circuit. You know, there were hundreds of airfields in England, in southern England at that time. I mean, every bit of land pretty much was a Yes. You know, there were aircraft everywhere. There were 2,000 people based here at Goodwood, three squadrons. It was a, it was a, big, a big operation. And so it was really the first one to, to get going, but it was very social. So Easter weekend was the big weekend. Everybody who was anybody was here. Uh, they all had a fabulously fun time, big drinks party on the Saturday night, and then mm. racing on East, Easter Monday was the big day. So it was a big social thing, and it was the opening of the season. Everyone was been waiting all winter to get racing again. I see. And so it was a big moment and cars came and teams came from all over the world. It was also a very fast circuit. Even in those days, it was pretty fast, though not as fast as it is now. And it was difficult. It's quite, it's quite demanding. And as you said earlier, what's exciting about it now, perhaps, is that it's never changed. I mean, you're driving or we're driving on exactly the same track that Fangio drove on, that Sterling drove on, that Jim Clark drove on, and our lap times Annoyingly, not quite as good as theirs. <laughs> yeah, so Jim Clark and Jackie Stewart still hold the lap record at Google, which is incredible. Isn't and, that um, amazing? I, I didn't even know that. Yeah. 
uh, yeah. that is really something which you couldn't even imagine in another track with you know, at Lamar or Indianapolis. I mean, there's no way mm. that a record from those many years ago would have held. Yeah. I find that really interesting. Well, I have never been to any experience like the revivals. I've never met anyone that isn't in a good mood at the revival. It's such a, a unique experience, ambiance. How would you describe it to someone if they've never been there? Well, I guess a little, a little bit of, give you a little bit of this a backstory. We tried to get the track going again. I looked at it first in about 91, 92. It had been closed in 66. So my grandfather had run it from 48 to 66. And he loved it, but he, he was worried about it. There were some very big accidents. He thought the cars were getting too quick and he didn't like wings on cars. And he fell out with a governing club. And I think he just got a bit bored of it too. And he decided the time had come to move on. I was about 10 at the time and I mm. was really pissed off. I mean, I, was, I, was really, <laughs> I loved it. And um, so in, in a funny way, in my mind, I thought, well, one day maybe I can get this thing going again. Mm. And um, so it sat there from 66 and it just kind of collapsed. They're amazing. The service of the track never got into too bad a state. So there was always testing, lots of unofficial testing, illegal testing, all sorts of things went on there. That sort of caused us some problems later because local authorities stuck a noise abatement order on it because we had some yeah. illegal testing. I was like, got too noisy. So that was my problem. So when I started to try and look at reopening it again, there were big noise issues. Mm. And it was pretty clear it wasn't going to happen easily. So that's when I had the idea of doing the Festival of Speed, which is not at the racetrack, but in front of the house on some private road we have, and just turned into this extraordinary, extraordinary thing, which everyone kind of fell in love with and, and enabled us to then think about, well, how do we get this old racetrack going again? So... We got the Festival Speed running in 93, and then eventually, uh, uh, having proven that we could make that work, enabled us to then eventually get planning permission. So it took seven years to reopen the circuit, which we did in 98. So we had our first revival in 98, and we started off by saying, well, let's rebuild the track. Let's make sure the track's exactly how it was, because that's its USP, the fact that it's never ever been changed. We didn't even have to resurface it. So then how could we make it feel like it did then? So we then looked at the old buildings and we tried to put all the wartime buildings, the ones that still stood up, uh, back together again. And then we thought, well, maybe actually people would like to come driving their old cars and come in classic cars and carrying the right picnic campers and that sort of thing. And then I think someone at some meeting uh, said, well, why don't they all come dressed and everywhere? Let's just make it like a 50s race meeting and just go for it. And a lot of people thought that was a really bad idea and said, well, no one's ever going to come. Really? No yeah, no one's going to dress up. Everyone's going to hate that idea. And I said, no, 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 I think we're going to go. We're going to do this, guys. We can make this happen. It's going to look amazing. And we'll get everyone and the mechanics and the drivers and everyone to, you know, really play a part in this. And that's what really singles it out. Everybody coming feels that they're like in the movie. Yeah. So you get 150,000 people. Everyone's making an effort. You know, you might wear a hat or just, you know, everyone looks great. And some people look more than great. They look unbelievably great. Yeah. And um, that's the really unusual thing about it, I think. It's a share, it really is a great shared experience. Who goes to Goodwood in your eyes? I'm pleased, Jim, that I think it's a hugely mixed group of people, and, and increasingly so. And also we're very excited now about the whole focus on sustainability in the world and all that excitement around you know, repurpose, recycle, reuse, all that stuff fits the revival so brilliantly well. So all those beautiful old cars, I mean, they don't owe anybody anything. We've just rebuilt them, yeah. recycled them, refurbished them a thousand times, these old race cars. So that's one bit of it. But everyone's coming in their vintage kit, beautiful vintage clothes, passed down from, you know, grandmother to mother to daughter, father to son. 
that's a really important part of it. Kind of, we call it revive and thrive. So the whole, the whole thrust of revival now is revive and thrive. That's really brought a whole, you know, whole new audience in as well, a younger, very different audience. And that's really exciting. But I think we have an incredible mix. We have the real hardcore racers. And then we have others who are there who don't know that much about racing or cars, but they've heard about it and they love the dressing up and they, they live a vintage lifestyle. Some people live it completely as if they're in the 50s. Yes. And as you said at the beginning, it's, it's basically one big party from, you know, Thursday <laughs> night to, to Sunday night. <laughs> and then, um, you know, it happened on the very first meeting. Actually, I had this wonderful feedback from guests and, and our spectators who just said they don't want to leave the site. They don't want to tread over that threshold after the weekend because that takes them back to the kind of reality, to the real world. And that, that was a great compliment. That's something I, f I thought that was really special. You, after university, you worked as a photographer and still do along with many people. I read Stanley Kubrick and others. Tell us about your love of photography and how it impacts Goodwood and the events you put on there. Yeah, well, I've always been, Jim, I've always been in love with visual things and photography has been a passion absolutely since I was about 10. And that's really what I wanted to do. And then I left school very early. Actually, I never went to university. I left mm. very early, so 16. Luckily, my parents were reasonable and sensitive enough to, to see that I needed to, to get out of there. So I managed to leave. And um, then I met some Australian filmmakers in London who were about to go to the National Film School. And one of them, he literally heard of this job going with Stanley Kubrick. He knew one of his PAs, something. I can't remember what. And amazing, I mean, I was 17 or so, I got the job. So things mm. suddenly improved. Having had a, had a pretty horrid time at school, I was suddenly, you know, living in London with my girlfriend. I was working for Kubrick. I was wow. earning what I thought was a fortune. It was nothing, actually, but it was felt like mm. a lot of money for a 17-year-old. I mean, working for Kubrick was, a, was an amazing thing. And his attention to detail is obviously absolutely mythical. Just to see somebody that focused on something, be around someone at that age who was so committed and that focused was really interesting. And also just to see that actually in the end, it's about a lot of it. It's just about putting in the time. You know, mm -hmm. you've just got to put in the effort. You've got to just put in the hours. Yes. I don't so much believe in people who just sort of seem to be able to do it with no effort. I think mostly people put in a huge effort and it's yeah. probably more about effort than talent actually in the end. Anyway, that was really, that was a huge learning curve for me. Yeah, we used to build big sets in the studio I had. We used to create different worlds. And I guess the revival is a bit of a reflection on that. So I'm, you know, I love building sets. I love creating magical places and giving people kind of really special and unexpected experiences. So I guess in a weird way, I never imagined I would be able to translate that into what I was going to be doing at Goodwood. But in a weird way, I guess the events have allowed me to do that. You have so many other events going on, as you described early on. How important are they to the sustainability of Goodwood as an estate? Hey, it's, it's been a bit of a, a fantastic miracle, really. You know, this, this incredible kind of piece of luck, really. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a believer in luck. One shouldn't underestimate, you know, one needs a bit of luck. And mm. uh, with the first speed, we really had a bit of luck, you know. We, mm. And we were told very few, few people would turn up. And lo and behold, I opened my curtains that first morning and 25,000 people <laughs> were rolling in. Wow. It was like a kind of rock concert or something it was amazing and from that moment on it was sort of unstoppable in a way yeah and that was massively helpful because you know the traditional businesses uh, around such an estate are not easy mm. and they've and cash flow is not easy so suddenly we were generating reasonable cash flow we were selling tickets and it just turned out to be one of those super lucky things that people just got really engaged with and i think we were lucky in that 
F1 then and things was very inaccessible. There was no way you could get really close to cars. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the simple rules at Goodwood is, you know, no cars allowed to have ropes around it or anything like that. Every mm. car's got to be absolutely accessible. Yes. And um, people just hadn't seen those cars. I mean, when I saw grown men crying at the sound of a BRM V16, I, I really <laughs> knew that there was something special going on here. So a lot of people don't realize these are very large estates, thousands of acres, and they get broken up as the generations move. People have to sell land to pay for the taxes. And what he's done is, what he says is lucky. I'm not sure it's lucky. I think it's hard work. Um, he's created these events where hundreds of thousands of people go. That has allowed his estate to thrive. What he didn't say, but I know, is that everything that you eat, that you touch, is sustainable and from his estate. He makes it all. And he only employs local people. So, as he said, sustainable, not just in a green way, but kind of like makes the community work better. And his estate that he clearly loves and lived in since he's 13 has a future. My name is Jim Farley, and this is Drive. When did you learn to drive? Gosh, Jim, I think I probably learned when I was about, um, probably when I was about 11 or something, moderately. Not very well. I can remember, my God, <laughs> the festival speed track is absolutely my go-kart track. That's absolutely what I used oh, to. Oh, really? Hair up and down there all the time. Yeah, coming out behind people, terrifying the hell out of me, sitting right up their tails. <laughs> they couldn't see me. All they could hear was this tiny engine screaming away at about 14,000 <laughs> RPM or something. <laughs> Well, I have to have a fun question, which is, whatever happened to British Racing Green? It used to be um, probably growing up in the car business, the most important color. You know, if you ordered a Explorer in America, it would be British Racing Green. And executed well, I don't think there's any more beautiful color. But it's not as popular as it was once. And I, I'd love to get your feedback. I know it's a bizarre question, but... Colors are really important, you know. Um, white is the most popular color globally for us, but green used to be really, really popular, and it's not anymore. It's weird, isn't it? No, green actually has a, also has a slight reputation for being an unlucky color in, in England. I don't know whether that's still... Oh, I didn't know that. That's still the case. No, but British racing green, you're quite right, is a very, very emotional color in many ways and uh, on those jaguar d types and stuff yes. and, uh, and actually you know there's quite a lot of contention around what british racing green is exactly you know because i mean oh, there have been many point yeah many variants of it you know how dark yes. is it what actually is it i mean there's no pantone i don't think anyone's got the pantone nailed down exactly mm -hmm. what, what mm -hmm. it is I remember Goodwood Green. I think Ferrari used to have a Goodwood Green in there, which they never got permission for, I hasten to add. But <laughs> really? Well, I have I have a, uh, info for you. I, I should have told you this. You know, the President of the United States came to Ford to drive our electric vehicle. And when we was here, Bill Ford and I had a few moments free. And we were giving him a hard time for owning Corvette. And he looked at Bill and I and he said, well, it's not just any Corvette. 
the car and the color is called Goodwood Green. <laughs> there isn't, you go. yeah. isn't that cool? That's fine. The president of the United States, he was so proud of Goodwood really? Greens. Well, I'm very pleased about that. Yeah, we'll have to deal with Corvette as well. They've never got permission. <laughs> <laughs> so call GM right now. Um, I will. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I, I know you deeply care not only about sustainability, but about the future. And I, I guess there's no core culture on the planet stronger than, than the UK. For for someone who has brought this experience to so many people that um, absolutely love reviving, how does the future and the past play in your mind in transportation? Well, the future's coming fast, now mm-hmm. that's for sure. And I think we've got to be positive about the future and excited about it. So, And I'm excited about it. I think um, there are going to be great strides. I'm not sure electrification is the answer but it's a step on the way to the answer. Mm-hmm. And um, it's the joy of mobility does, that worries me. Are people gonna still have that? Is that joy gonna be there? Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, for me, that's really important. You know, I see it in my own children, you know, some of them don't drive, some of them absolutely love it. But is that is that, people say, well, far fewer, which is true, far fewer teenagers are actually taking their tests or actually bothering to drive all their own cars. I mean, it would be sad to, to lose that joy, but maybe, Things are just going to move on and change and that mm-hmm. it'll be, it'll come in a different way. And that's mm-hmm. fine. I think as far as old cars are concerned, you know, I hope we're not going to let that disappear. I hope we're going to be able to make sense of, of old cars in the future, because in terms of sustainability, they don't really owe anybody anything. But at the same time, I think they're going to, it'll become a leisure pursuit, just like horses. So we'll be doing, and we're preparing for that at Goodwood, you know, we're getting ready for really trying to be there ready for people when they're, they're just using their, their cars for fun and at weekends, and uh, it becomes a major part of their leisure time. But it's going to be fascinating how it plays out. And I think for you and me, Jim, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see if our grandchildren have the same affection for them. You know, obviously cars relate to your own lifetime. They're rather like music. You know, you want to share yes. them and they yes. relate to your own moment. So I guess they do move on. So our children's cars, like the ones that they relate to are bound to be different to the ones that we did. But, you know, we talk about music too and the Beatles and Ferraris and all these yes. things. Yes. It isn't like we're going to all forget it. And only yeah. listen to the music of the, you know, my, my 21 year olds listen to the Beatles as much as I do. Yep. We're not going to suddenly forget it. So yeah. what about the cars? Are they, are they the same? We're going to suddenly forget about GT40s and move on to something mm. else or not? It's going to be fascinating. I mean, I so hope not. The, the, the high point of the mechanical age mm-hmm. is going to be a great thing. And of course, that age is going to change. We're losing the analog world. Yes. And, um, you know, I think that was one of the most exciting things about working with somebody like Kubrick, is this mm-hmm. was somebody who was absolutely at their high point at the end of the analog world. You know, he had the analog yes. movie world absolutely at his fingertips. And now, of course, mm-hmm. it's all changed. It's all CGI. It's all special mm-hmm. effects. It's, it's all very different. And I think the car world that we love, you know, as a generation, we are at the end of the analog world in a way. And how much of that we're we going to retain and how much of that's going to consider to be important is going to be fascinating because obviously for us, it means a lot. I love what you just said. I think it's so insightful. I think of myself as a leader of Ford, as a transitional leader. I have a foot in the past and I have a foot in the future. And my job is to get the company to the future without ever... Um, taking the past for granted. I don't mean the history of the company. I mean internal combustion engines and the people that have perfected this, as you said. But there'll come someone after me 
who will be a digital native. And like you said, they'll look at the business and the company differently, but I, I don't think my role is any less important. And I so appreciate what you just said because I'm not sure how it worked out either, but it probably will, <laughs> as you said, probably will surprise us uh, in some way. Um, would you give me any advice as a, someone who's seen so much and, and understood so much about transportation um, as a leader for it at this point in time? Well, I'm not sure this is super helpful in terms of where the future's going or anything, but mm -hmm. I just think, mm -hmm. I mean, I guess one thing would be don't underestimate people. One of the things I've been most surprised about is you know, people have said to me, oh, why are we bothering to do this? This is a waste of time. You know, no one's going to notice, but it's all those little things that add up. And I'm always astonished by the feedback I get from people who come into contact with some of the stuff that, that the team, that my team does here. And they, it's made a big difference. And they said, I just want to write to you, let you know that I noticed that. Mm -hmm. I saw that and I really loved it. And I then say to the guys, hey, look, they did notice it. They did see mm -hmm. it. People did get a buzz from it. It was a tiny thing, guys, but it made a difference. It's those little things. It's thinking about people and saying, yeah, I respect you. And I think that's really, and I know that, you know, it's just like all the people, you've got so many people that you're responsible for, so many people that work for you, so many people's, you know, their whole, their whole future and livelihood, if you like, in your hands. And I think it's just remembering how much impact one has on people in the tiniest ways, really, just by, and giving people that respect, really. Thank you. Is there anything I missed? Anything we talked about in the world of transportation that you think we, we miss talking about? As you said just now, it's a fantastically exciting time. It's on the brink of something huge. You know, the speed with which change is happening is just is racking up so fast, that acceleration that we will see those changes. You know, I think about my great-grandmother. I knew her well. She died. She was 99. I was about 17. So she'd gone from, the, from horses, carriages, to the moon mm. in one lifetime. And that's pretty amazing. Uh, and to be able to adapt is pretty amazing. But what we're having to cope with now is 100 times faster than that. And that's accelerating every year by 100, 100 mm. times again. So we're going so fast that I think one of the challenges how on earth we do manage as just as human beings, how we, how we cope with the speed of that, all that's fascinating. I totally agree. Well, I just have to say uh, a day at the revival is some of the best memories I've had in my whole life. And there are millions of people like me. What your team does in putting us all in the movie, <laughs> on the set, allowing us to have a shared experience that you could never do individually are just so special. And I want to thank you for that and also this time together to understand the backdrop of, of that. So thank you so much for the time and all the very best to your lovely family. Jim, uh, thanks so much. A hand to you and thanks a lot for this. I've enjoyed it a lot too. All the very best. Pleasure. See you then. Bye-bye. Drive is produced by Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom of Magnificent Noise for Spotify. Chris Curtin is consulting producer. Our production staff includes Julia Nott and Eva Walchover, with help from Lori Arpin, Jeff Nelson, Josh Malofsky, Darnell Macon, and Mark Truby. Special thanks to Liz Kellogg and Matt Lieber. Jim Farley is the host, and this is Drive. Drive.